Hello, and welcome to Inside Policy Talks, the premier video podcast of the Macdonald-Laurier Institute, Ottawa's most influential public policy think tank. At the Macdonald-Laurier Institute, we harness the power of Canada's brightest minds to tackle Canada's greatest challenges. Learn more at macdonaldlaurier.ca. Thank you, everyone, for joining us for this very special edition of Inside Policy Talks. My name is Marcus Colgan. I'm a senior fellow at the Macdonald-Laurier Institute and the founder of disinfowatch.org. Um, we're very pleased today to be joined by our guest, David Frum, who's, of course, a political commentator on both sides of the Canada-U.S. border, an author, former speechwriter for President George W. Bush, and a senior editor at The Atlantic. David, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Um, I want to start out our chat about what's what's been happening in Israel over the past few weeks and the reaction here in Canada, the U.S., and other parts of the Western world. We've seen an alarming eruptions of anti-Semitism in Canada and around the world. Much of this seems to be tolerated by segments of our population and on some university campuses and groups on the extremes of the political spectrum. Uh, what does the reaction of our governments and segments of our society say about our current culture and our politics? Yeah, um, I think we need to distinguish between two trends, both bad, but different. Uh, the first trend is uh, the authentic increase in anti-Semitic feeling in all the countries of the Western world. Um, this has largely been driven by immigration flows. Um, immigration brings many benefits to the receiving society, creativity, um, rejuvenation, many, many benefits. It also brings uh, quarrels from other places into a place that hadn't had them before. Um, so uh, it's, it's pretty evident that the very specifically anti-Jewish feeling that you see in Canadian cities, the Molotov cocktails thrown at synagogues, the shots fired at Jewish schools, uh, the attempts to boycott Jewish-owned businesses, or, to smash, or on Kristallnacht itself, on the anniversary of Kristallnacht itself, to go around smashing windows of Jewish-owned shops. A lot of that seems to be driven by relative newcomers to Canada and their children who are acting on feelings they brought from the Middle East. The second trend, and one that is, in a way, even more alarming, is the permission structures that are being granted this, because it is very obvious um, in universities, but even just police departments, do not respond to this anti-Semitic violence in the way that they would respond to equivalent violence if directed at other communities in Canada or the United States or Great Britain or France. Um, and uh, the, 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 there is a tendency of authorities to, to look away. And that's driven by uh, changes in the political ideology that are not specifically anti-Jewish but that, are, um, that have a larger meaning for the receiving societies and uh, the people who run institutions of education and culture and public law and order. Now, does, do these sorts of positions get, get called out? Um, and, and do you think there's a way of doing this um, in order to put a stop to this sort of behavior? I think it's going to be uh, challenging. It's going to be quite challenging. Um, that... Uh, a lot of the specifically anti-Jewish activity takes the form not uh, of symbolic violence. You know, notice that the shots fired at the schools are fired in very small hours of the morning or in the middle of the night. The Molotov cocktails are thrown at midnight. Uh, that th these are not objects with actual intents to kill. Uh, th these are objects fired or thrown to demonstrate a desire to kill, but not an intent to kill. Um, and uh, Symbolic, uh, or when you when you see at rallies and demonstrations, placards 
that use the symbolism of, of the glider, the Kalashnikov rifle. Again, these are statements of, of not intent to kill, but of desire to kill. Now, uh, free speech law in most Western countries gives a lot of room uh, to expressions of symbolic violence. So it's not so easy to crack down on that. Um, and it's especially not easy when it is targeted against, when, when the people who commit this symbolic violence are people who have, um, who, uh, whom the authorities are especially anxious to protect. Because in other contexts, to be fair, these people are subject to job discrimination. They are themselves subject to other forms of harassment and prejudice. Um, we've built a giant apparatus to protect people from discrimination and harassment. And then um, the authorities get a little tongue-tied and twisted when they say, well, the, wait a minute, the people we're protecting from discrimination and harassment are now turning around and, and um, imposing symbolic violence against other communities. Our bureaucracy is equipped to defend, not to enforce. Now, there seems to be an alignment emerging between those who seem to believe that Hamas is justified in attacking Israel and those who believe that um, Vladimir Putin is justified in attacking Ukraine. Top among them is, of course, the Iranian regime, uh, which yeah. supports uh, both Hamas and, and, and Putin. So how do we hold Iran to account for, for all this and what should Canada be doing? Um, uh we need to be paying attention to some very specific Iranian capabilities. Um, one is uh, that their missiles do seem to be getting a lot better. Um, the idea that they're firing these missiles from Yemen toward Israel, um, and although the, the missiles are so far being intercepted because the air defenses are also very good, it is a warning that there's been a lot of progress uh, in Ar Iranian missile technology. Um, and of course, they are continuing to make um, strides toward development of nuclear warheads to put on top of those superior rockets. So that's one thing we need to be uh, very careful of. Um, the United States has hit back on some uh, Iranian targets. I don't think there's much appetite for adding Iran to the list of direct conflicts that anybody has after the conflicts with, with Russia and now the desire to get to some kind of stability in, in um, Israel and Gaza. Um, but there was a decade ago a lot of hope that Iran could be coaxed into a more normal relationship with the Western world. I think we need to begin by saying those hopes were, were wrong. I've always feared that one reason that um, the Obama administration reacted as lightly as it did to the Russian attack on Crimea in 2014 was at that point, they were very optimistic or hopeful about uh, coaxing Iran into a deal. They wanted Russian help to, uh, to, um, to bring pressure on Iran. And so they traded away Crimea for Russian help against Iran. That looks like a not a good trade today. Well, and then shifting to uh, to Ukraine, um, uh, you know, uh, the Western world has has done a, a pretty good job. Speaking of support for Ukraine over the for the past two uh, two years or so of, of of providing that support for Ukraine, although our you know we we had that initial reluctance, um, which wasn't particularly helpful. Um, but in the U.S. right now, we're seeing support really quite frankly, slip amongst yeah. some members of the GOP. Uh, some pundits on the right have taken positions that might be defined as being aligned with the Kremlin. And none of it seems to align with traditional conservative or, or sort of Reaganite positions of supporting freedom and democracy. So how do we explain to Canadians where all of this is coming from and why are so many Republicans in the House and Senate taking this position? Well, First, it needs to be stressed, about three quarters of the U.S. House of Representatives wants to support Ukraine. Um, the specific parliamentary challenges of that three quarters 
Uh, that, that, that is not spread equally among the party. So almost all Democrats, except for a very few on the far left, want to support Ukraine. But the Republican caucus, which is the majority right now, is split down, down the middle. Um, and that has had some really inhibiting effects. Uh, we have, um, we ha we have, we're running out of the um, authorized funds that are available for Ukraine. Uh, there needs to be a supplemental bill. Um, there's been all this turmoil in the Republican leadership, and this supplemental bill for $65 billion um, is, is stalled. Uh, there was, on the day you and I speak, Monday, November 27th, there were some hopeful noises from the uh, new Speaker of the House, Mike Johnson, who said he did not want to see Vladimir Putin rampaging through Europe. That That's welcome. But a lot of what is being said otherwise is, is pretty discouraging. Because remember, what the help Ukraine needs, Ukraine is a highly developed society. At the same time as it's fighting this war, it is also paying pensions to retirees. It is also operating healthcare services. It is also operating schools and, and doing so at a time when its economy is under the most extraordinary stress. So they need not just uh, military aid, but they need assistance to op continue to operate an economy. Um, and there is great, even among those Republicans who are willing to help Ukraine fight its war, there's great hesitancy to help them keep their economy alive. And this fills me with foreboding because, look, this war will end sooner or later. Um, uh, let's all hope as soon as possible. And when it does, it's going to leave behind a gigantic reconstruction problem. And Ukraine has a lot of economic potential. Uh, really, uh, uh, one way to think about this is um, on the eve, before COVID in 2019, uh, the GDP per capita of Ukraine was something like 3,000 American dollars. The GDP per capita of Romania, next door was $13,000. Um, $13,000 is not a lot. Romania is not a wealthy country. But if you just simply add, if Ukraine could catch up to Romanian levels of development, uh, you would be adding $10,000 of GDP times the population of Ukraine to the economy of Europe. Um, that is a big influx of strength and wealth into the economy of Europe. There's a big win there. And of course, the reconstruction of Ukraine will trigger the, it, uh, when Ukrainians need homes. Those homes will need new ovens, new refrigerators. Um, uh, people will need, uh, Ukraine will need to rebuild roads, and those roads will need all kinds of high-tech lights to light them. Ukraine needs to modernize water systems to catch up to European environmental standards. That is going to mean jobs for consultants from all over the world to teach them how to build modern water systems. Um, Ukraine is going to have to make an energy transition away from coal to uh, gr more green sources. That's going to, I mean, it, it, this is going to be a growth magnet for Europe and generally for the West. But we have to get from here to there, and we have to make sure they have the resources to start this process. And the attitudes in Congress right now are not very encouraging to me about um, the United States bearing its share. Uh, Europe will pay no matter what the United States does, but it will pay more generously if the United States is involved. And if the United States is involved, that means also it'll be easier to raise money from Japan, Australia, Canada, and other like-minded nations not in the European Union. It's I don't know what it says about us that we're ready to write a check to help someone buy a gun to defend his house, but after the marauders have smashed up the place and after he's driven off the people who smashed up his house, we suddenly get very stingy when it, when he needs help, you know, rebuilding the windows and and replacing the furniture that was set on fire. So we're heading into an election year now. Um, you've said that you don't believe that Donald Trump will win that election. But if he does, um, what does U.S. support for Ukraine look like in, yeah. in the year 2025? Well, I have an article in The Atlantic coming out, I think, next week um, that says, that talks a little bit about my um, 
frustration with questions like, if Trump is elected, what does it mean for X or Y or Z? Um, because if Trump is were to be returned to the presidency, the degree of chaos into which the United States would instantly be plunged um, is unlike anything seen in the country's modern history. Even during the Great Depression, there was a functioning executive branch. The country had many objective problems, much worse objective problems than it faces today. But at the center, there was a government that, you know, there was a president, the president signed pieces of paper, the rest of the government executed what was said on those pieces of paper. Um, the president came to work every day with some vision to make the country better. That's not what a second Trump term is going to be like. Um, Trump's overwhelming priority will be to escape the enormous legal danger he's in by destroying the justice system of the United States. That will be his first priority. Um, and his second priority will be to take revenge to the extent he can on anyone who crossed him. And that begins, he has this vision that it's Ukraine's fault that he got into so much trouble in this first term, and he's going to want to punish Ukraine. So it's not a question of, of policy. It's a question of, can a president who's got four sets of indictments buzzing around his ears, who's going to be trying to shut down the Department of Justice, who's going, who's got, who's going to be trying to use these artificially created vacancies in the military created by his ally, Senator Tuberville, who's been putting a hold on military. But Trump's going to try to stuff those vacancies with uh, military appointees who will help him to use the military in a political way, in a way never seen before in American history. I'm not, I'm not, I don't believe he'll succeed, but he's going to try. And those are going to be the, I mean, the questions like, so when people ask questions like, what does a second Trump term mean for a trade policy? I mean, it means chaos in Washington. It means people in the streets. It means the collapse of the Department of Justice. It means an attempt to politicize the military, to use it to impose presidential authority in violation of law. I mean, so everything else is going to be pretty much paralyzed. <laughs> the rest of the government is not going to be able to do much of anything because there won't be any center to that government. So what does Canada and the rest of the Western world do? But let's say Canada, what do we do to mitigate any sort of risks? Is there anything that we can do to prepare in case of that eventuality that Trump does become president? Um, there isn't a lot that Canada can do because um, there are things that Europeans can do, but the Canada-US relationship, it's really non-optional. Um, so um, it, it, Canada's policy is, is to play for time. You know, I'm not a big admirer of the Justin Trudeau government, but I think they handled the first year or two of the Trump administration pretty well, as best they could. Um, you know, they tried to avoid doing anything to rile the beast. Um, they avoided negative comments coming from Ottawa. There was tremendous message discipline. And then they just hunkered down and hoped for the best and tried to uh, prevent Trump, tried to make whatever concessions, the fewest possible concessions on NAFTA to prevent Trump to give Trump the feeling that he'd done something when in fact he hadn't done much. Um, uh, that in option in, in a second Trump term, what can Canada do if Trump tries to politicize the military to overthrow constitutional government in the United States? Just hope for the best. Now the choices are more challenging for European partners because their security needs are greater than Canada's and they already have a multinational system. And one of the things Europeans will have to think about is does this mean that they really, it's time seriously to think about the European Union as a defensive military alignment um, or even an alliance, which it has never really been before and efforts to try have always failed. But it, this is a reminder that um, the, the benefit, depending on the United States, is you get the world's best defense at the lowest possible price. Um, but the danger is it can be withdrawn and you have no ability to stop it from being withdrawn. 
Now, I'm just keeping an eye on the time, a final question for you. Um, we've seen this rising polarization, the rise of populism, uh, certainly in the United States, but also across Europe, especially in the, the Netherlands in, in their recent election. Um, there seems to be elements of this creeping into Canadian politics as well. Yeah. So what advice would you have? Um, you know, having seen what happened in the in the U.S. over the past decade, what uh, what advice would you have for Canadian politicians to avoid the same kind of polarization here in Canada? Well, I, my first piece of advice would be to make up their minds that they want to avoid it. You know, this, as you said, this this um, tendency has been going on for a long time, and and when it started in the 2010s, uh, people like you and me came up with lots of um, rational reasons why it was happening. And we looked at the slow recovery from uh, the Great Recession of 2009. We looked at the pressure from migration flows and the st how stressful that was. We looked at the uh, middle class and how the middle class was doing. But a decade later, all of those things are different from the way they were in 2014. The stimulus has changed, but the response is the same. And, and at this point, you have to say, you know what, this thing may be feeding on itself. And this effort to look for material or um, objective causes. A way, and a way I would think about this very much in the Canadian context is I'm, we don't have the data. I suspect that if we could really study in the same, in the same way we have information on the world today, study the American society of 1953 at the zenith of the Joe McCarthy movement, we would discover it was just as polarized then as it is now. The difference then is uh, at that time, in the United States and other democracies, the political system leaned against the polarization. You had parties that were big, shaggy coalitions, uh, included people with lots of point of view, the parties that had lots of inhibitions about what they said and they didn't say, memories of the Great Depression and communism and fascism and the Second World War were fresh. Um, there was a culture of responsibility. Um, many of the leading politicians had been through military service and had a sense of, of missions and purposes larger than their own agenda. Uh, uh, ambitions. I think what has changed so much since that time is the political system is now the driver of polarization. This is very true in the United States. It has been less true in Canada. But I think there are people in Canada who and would like to do it. I mean, I think one of the things that was so discouraging about that, I gave Justin Trudeau's government some praise, now the criticism, that Canada is a country that leans a little to the left of the United States. And th that government played a lot of culture war politics for political advantage. Lowering, lowering flags, um, making Canadians try to feel ashamed of their national history. And they did that partly for ideology, but partly because they thought there were some votes to be had. Um, that kind of behavior elicits reactions because people, there are some people who will agree to feel shame about their country and there are other people who will resist. And whether you should feel shame or proud for your country is not the kind of issue where you can split the difference. You know, it's one thing when you're at deciding where the highway should go. Uh, this, you know, okay, this year we'll spend the money in Saskatchewan, next year we'll spend the money in New Brunswick, um, you know, and, and handshake deals and understandings, and that can all be compromised. But the question of pride or shame, that's not something that's easy to compromise. And once you make those issues the fulcrum of your politics, uh, then you invite other people to find, to do play politics the same way. And I think we're seeing that in parts of the Canadian right. Um, you, uh, an event like the truckers protest, um, it's just unimaginable from the Canada of even 20 years ago, a deliberate violation of law over a long period of time um, to make some point, whether good or bad, um, but 
this quasi-military occupation of the capital city. That had not been seen before. That was not in bounds. Um, Canadians didn't do it. And if anybody did do it, the political system would be agreed that it shouldn't be done. Well, the political system was not agreed that it shouldn't be done. There are people who are willing to play with that source of political energy. And that's dangerous. Um, we are, uh, can't, there is no dispensation that says that Canada will be spared the troubles of the rest of the democratic world. Canadians are made of the same stuff as all other human beings. And if you play politics the same way, you will get the same outcomes. And so those individuals, those groups were playing into what you call negative partisanship. Yes. Being against something rather than for something. Right. Um, you know, this, this, I don't know who coined the phrase, but it, it was brought into currency in the 2000s by a political scientist named Alan Abramowitz, who wrote a very interesting paper. Uh, through the 1990s, there were lots of papers showing that party identification was dropping. More and more people in the United States regarded themselves as independents. There was a careless tendency to assume that independent and centrist were the same thing. Um, and there were a lot, and if you go back and with the Ross Perot campaigns of 92 and 96, if you go back and look at the literature of the time, you'll see lots of stuff on the rise of the independent voter and a lot of blurring of the idea between independent and centrist. So Abramowitz had the nifty idea, instead of asking people, what party do you like? He asked them, what party do you dislike? And when you put the question that way, it turned out there were no independents. Everybody had a party they disliked more. Um, and that dislike became a powerful motivator. For one thing, it meant you could take over a party by, if you could, if a small um, cohesive group could get control of a party, you could then use the other party members' dislike of the opposition party to mobilize them to support something they would never have supported on their own. Um, and that's very much the Trump story. You get control of the party and then say, however little you like Trump, and lots of Republicans didn't like him very much, surely you agree that he, you know, he, he will save us from the nightmare that is Hillary Clinton and Nancy Pelosi. Now they're trying to run the same trick with Joe Biden, where it's less promising, but they're trying. Well, on that cheery note, um, we're going to have to wrap up this episode of Inside Policy Talks. Um, our very special guest has been David Frum. David, thank you so much again uh, for taking the time to be with us. Um, until next time, thank you all for joining us.